Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What does it mean to hope in the kingdom of God and how does this hope differ from the false promises of idealism? How is the biblical teaching, which seems impractical, ruthlessly practical in its transformation of human behavior? Why is the content of the gospel readily dismissed by both religious and secular thinkers? What opportunity does this teaching and the decline of religion in the United States present to Christians? Richard and I continue our discussion of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 102 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue our reading of 1 Corinthians. I'm very excited about this letter. It has so much oomph and so much depth, and it is so relentless in the case it is making against the human ego. And I'm glad we were able to divide this chapter into two parts because I think that contextualizing it and understanding the basis of Paul's argument that comes here in the first chapter bears extra time. So we have from our last episode, as you said, this context established, this groundwork has been laid, that we are here because of the will of God, which presents to us the teaching of the cross, which instructs us to set aside our own selfish wants and desires to put aside our way of thinking, to put aside everything for the singular cause of fellowship and kinonia with our neighbor. If you have received the gift, if you have received the grace, if you have been sanctified, then you are no longer capable of dividing the community. Oh, it looks like you're dividing the community. I guess that says something. We're picking up the letter in verse 18 of chapter 1. Paul has just explained that if there's division, it's making void the cross of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to actually talk about this teaching. Now here you have to understand that the word cross isn't talking about the cross in an objectified sense. He's talking about the content of the gospel. He's talking about a word that is preached. It seems like an unnecessary nuance to tease out, but it's important because the whole system hinges upon what is written. Paul will come back to this point that you can't exceed what is written. That's what he's referring to when he says the will of God in the opening verse. So this cross that he's talking about is a commandment. Think of it this way. We don't use crosses anymore. In more recent times, we've used nooses for hanging. When he's talking about the cross, and when you pick up your cross, he's talking about the noose that's around your neck. I understand you're very clever, but I notice there's this noose around your neck, and you're about ready to be hanged. I don't know how clever you are, but you still seem like you've got this noose around your neck. Can you imagine a modern pastor dealing with conflict in the church, and every time parishioners started bickering about something silly, he took out a noose 
and said, this is for you. <laughs> Give me your head. <laughs> Give me your head. I mean, people would go crazy. But this is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. Every time there's an argument, he's saying, look, this is for you. I don't understand what we're talking about here. Do you see this news? I have one for you, too. Now, I know you're very clever. I know you're very smart. But, you know, when you've got the noose around your neck... I like to see you talk your way out of that one. <laughs> you all kind of look the same to me. So I want listeners to think, instead of cross, think about noose. N-O-O-S-E. But don't be grim about it. Because it's not morbid the way people make sometimes the symbol of the cross into a morbidity. It's a liberation from the morbidity of your survival instinct. This is the contradiction. Because once you face the cross then you're no longer held captive by your fear of losing the argument, by your fear of not succeeding, by your fear of not achieving, by your fear of not having and being safe and secure, whatever it is that you lust after, that the cross destroys. The person with the noose around his neck does not think about how clever they are. They don't think about how powerful they are. Only in the movies... When Han Solo talks himself out of some difficult situation, but in real life, Han Solo does not talk himself out of a difficult situation because people who wield death don't listen to clever arguments. I mean, this really is living your life as if this is your last day. That's where you have to begin. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's what we were just saying, that this symbol of your defeat, this teaching that commands you to be defeated, is for you hopeful because you demonstrate in accepting this commandment that you are not wed to the things you're letting go of that are perishing, but you have hope in the freedom that that letting go offers for the sake of God's household. For it is written, and here he's quoting Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? He's hitting the Greeks and he's hitting the Jews. The philosopher and the scribe, the sophist and the religious scholar. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The difference between the wise man from a Neoplatonic point of view and the human being in the biblical point of view is that the wise man in the Neoplatonic point of view is always advancing to a point of immortality because of, by the grace of, their wisdom. The biblical point of view is that any wisdom that the human being has is always going to be tempered by death, by temporality. You're only going to get so far because you're always going to be limited by the fact you're going to die. You can sense eternity, but you cannot grasp it. You cannot grasp it because you are passing away. I'm so thankful we read Ecclesiastes this year because Ecclesiastes really illumines Paul's letters in a way that is of the utmost importance it's a letter that people don't spend a lot of time with, unfortunately. They should spend much more time with Ecclesiastes in the churches because it opens up so much of the genius 
behind these letters. Well, Ecclesiastes talks about the wise man and how he's going to end up in the same place as the rich man, as the poor man, as the dog. And that's the currency of 1 Corinthians. It's plain as day. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, meaning all the thinking and philosophizing and theologizing in the world is not going to help you know God because God is revealed as his will. I go back to the opening verse. He's revealed as his will, which is written, that which you can't go beyond with your human thought and your human philosophy and your human rules. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. Paul is saying flat out that the gospel teaching is foolishness because it does not pertain to the human ego. It does not serve the human ego. It is not rational according to human paradigms. So for the human, it is foolish, but it is given to save those who trust in the instruction. The foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Again, this reminds me of Hebrews 11 we read yesterday about Abraham who left his nice comfortable land to go live in tents as a foreigner or who was willing to sacrifice his son or elsewhere in Hebrews 11 where Moses's parents decided to go and put Moses in a basket and float him along the river and Moses who decided he didn't want to live comfortably as a child of Pharaoh but wanted to live as a Hebrew and it goes through the whole list of everyone who through trusting God did things that were on the surface foolish it's not that people back then were automatically willing to trust God. These people stood out because of their foolish actions based in a trust in God. They were basically impractical. And that's the thing. Human beings want to make out of the gospel something practical. And it's not practical. It is something that's impractical that's preached to those who want something beyond what they can see. They want to live according to a world that they imagine. And when I say imagine, I'm not saying something they invented. I'm saying a place that they live according to that is wiser and better than the place the that kingdom, we live in. The it's kingdom. The, precisely, the kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's that reality that we hope in, that in the darkest hour can emerge as a guide through all of the terrible things that happen in the world, all of the things that are so disheartening and discouraging, those who live as though that kingdom is already here, those are the people that bring hope. Martin Luther King or Walid Isa, the world that they depict, the world that they are living according the to. The world that they inhabit in the way that they walk. This is what God means in the book of Joshua when he says, wherever you walk, if you walk according to my instruction, you're walking in the promised land. This is the whole system of scripture. It's different than Platonic philosophy. Platonic philosophy imagines the way things should be and then imposes it. Scripture looks at the way things are and says, okay, this is the way the world is. This is how you're going to be treated if you live this way. But you should live this way. And you should choose to live this way in the hope that God will not abandon you and his promise that this reality will be ushered in one day is trustworthy and true. That's how it works, right? So it's, it's a practical approach to hope. It's a non-philosophical approach 
to hope that actually has power in practical terms to make people pregnant with this reality in a material way. By living according to the rules, the laws of the heavenly kingdom, the place that is manifested by this text, we bring this kingdom into the world that we walk around in with our physical body. We don't impose it. We manifest it. That's the difference. We're not saying this is how we think things should be and telling everyone to do it or showing everyone how to dress or how to talk or whatever. We are saying this is the reality that God has presented to us and we choose to accept it and we live accordingly. And so then by reforming your own behavior, you then suddenly create an environment that's inviting to everyone. In Zechariah, when the heavenly Jerusalem is established, everyone in the heavenly Jerusalem act according to Torah and treat each other well and there's peace and there's harmony there. And then the nations see and they say, how do we become part of that place? This is how the gospel is supposed to function. It's not the people of the heavenly Jerusalem are supposed to go out and conquer all the lands and force everyone to be members of the heavenly Jerusalem. No, they live and people say, oh my gosh, everything seems to work there. How do we become part of that? It's like that beautiful hymn, they will know we are Christians by our love. That's the point. That's the mechanism. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. So you have the religious community that wants proof in terms of miracles and signs and wonders. This is the currency of Deuteronomy in the Pauline tradition. And Greeks search for wisdom. Now, Deuteronomy makes fun of people who need proof and signs and wonders. It says all you need is the will of God, the text. And now Paul is applying that same mockery from Deuteronomy to the Greeks. All you need is the will of God, which says love your neighbor, and you're still trying to figure out the anthropology of your neighbor. But you claim, as did 18th century and 19th century anthropologists, that you're trying to figure out the anthropology of the natives because you want to understand them, when in fact you're developing a taxonomy for your colonial racism. The white people always end up on top of that. They all, yeah, and the, funny how the Greeks would always end up on top, or the Romans would always end you know, In other words, everyone's always building themselves up. So just stop it. Stop with your explaining and your philosophizing. Stop with your need for proof or signs, because the whole thing is built on your trust in the possibility of this kingdom that is promised by God through Abraham. Abraham got the sign after he was willing Absolutely. to sacrifice his son. That's when God sent the ram. So you're seeking wisdom and signs, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, to the religious community, a stumbling block. Because you labored under the impression, you, like Jacob, labored under the impression that there was something in it for you. But Laban had the last laugh because there's nothing in it for you but slavery. You wanted victory and you're as much a slave as your fathers were in Egypt or as the Egyptians were to your fathers before. Paul keeps pointing out, but what about that noose? The noose that killed him. Remember how he got killed? Remember when he was up and they pulled the lever and he fell through. Remember how he died? Yeah, but Christ did all these great things, all these miracles. Paul keeps emphasizing he died. The Jewish community had a special status in Roman society, a protected status, which gave the impression that you could achieve worldly success by following the Jewish religion. And so now Paul is presenting to the Jews the stumbling block. Well, if you follow Jesus, you're going to fail. And then he turns around and tells the same thing to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, the Romans, 
It's stupidity. It's folly. That's why I can't stand Christian self-help books. Self-help books by themselves are silly. But when you slap Jesus on a self-help book, it becomes harlotry and prostitution. Because how can you make out of the cross a self-improvement paradigm? Paul is presenting Jesus the failure, and that's what everybody is choking on and stumbling over and ridiculing. But to those who are the called, and again, it's the call to hear the word of God and to do it, to act upon it. It's a universal call, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, might not seem like it to you because you're fleshly human who only thinks about himself this seems stupid to you but if you place your trust in this teaching and the promise of this reality of the kingdom that is to come you will suddenly discover that this promise manifests the true universal wisdom of creation which comes from the will of god and manifests the true power of the god who made the heavens and the earth who is above all gods. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And this is a classic example that you find often in scholarship where someone who doesn't know what they're talking about tells a scholar, well, how do you know? Isn't it just a guess or an interpretation? Well, the response of the scholar is yes. But my guess and my interpretation is more reliable than your facts. And this is difficult for people to understand that there is a chasm. This is the failure of Western education because they thought that they were enlightened to teach you to question everything. They forgot to mention that you have to question intelligently, not just, you know, choose to not believe whatever you don't want to believe because it suits your ego. Now you have evidence talking about different phenomena and people rolling their eyes like it's not true and coming up with their own beliefs. Because who says? The data says... And there is a difference between your interpretation of the data and mine because you don't know what you're talking about. So here, Paul is taking that way of talking, which is the way a learned man talks, and he is pushing it to the chasm between God and man. And he's saying, look, God, even if he's a fool, his foolishness is wiser than your wisest wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. There were not many wise according to the flesh. Now he's slapping them. Paul had the equivalent of an Ivy League education. He could have been a prince in worldly terms, the greatest among all the sons of Benjamin. But he gave it all up for the sake of the cross. And now he has to listen to a bunch of fools in the church brag about how smart they are in worldly matters? Are you kidding me? And here's how Paul brags. He brags to shame. He doesn't brag to boast. He twists it. He's boasting in the cross. Because he's saying, I don't even respect my own achievement, and you want me to respect your achievement? Not only that, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. This is a critique also against Neoplatonic teaching. Okay, you teach all these great virtues, mightiness and nobility and that sort of thing. You're subscribing to the intellect and things that make sense. And how many people actually signed on? You are so happy that you have these ideas that are so intellectual, (laughs) and they're so clever, and... You can't even get people to agree to that. Let's be serious. This is the bread of life. It's not the bread of philosophy. He's been telling you that you were called, you were called, you were called, you were called. And then he tells you, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. In other words, in order for me to preach this teaching, I had to die to the world and become despised and weak and cast off like the wastewater from the Roman latrine. I had to become the lowest of the low. And you, if you are called, this is what you are called to. You're not impressive, and you're called to remain not impressive. They think of themselves as something, and he's telling them, you're called in your nothingness. You are nothing. It's a double-handed slap because they are nothing. And the worst thing you could tell them is that God has called people who are nothing. He's saying that the gospel is not there to show you how wise and clever you are but shame you because of your wisdom and your cleverness. That's the key. He's shaming them. That's the He's power. He's shaming them. The gospel is not there to build up their ego, but to break down their ego. It's not to build up their wisdom, but to break down their wisdom because all their wisdom and cleverness is of the flesh. But ironically, it's the cross and the knowledge that one is merely fleshly that is the basis of true wisdom, which is that there is no time, there is no power, there is no prestige when you're the one up there on the platform ready to be hanged. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, the things that are nothing, so that he may nullify the things that are, the things that are something. I mean, imagine you have the king on the horse with his generals going into battle, talking about how brave he is. You have a weak, emaciated, humiliated person about ready to be hanged. When the first has no fear, it's because he's surrounded by an army. When the second one has no fear, it's because he's truly brave, because he has no reason to be brave. And this is the difference. And this is why the one up on the platform ready to be hanged puts the king or the general to shame. The king, the general, is going to trust in his army. The one on the platform with the noose around his neck only has God to trust in. So that no man may boast before God. Because no matter what your station is, when you're standing there about to be executed, there's no difference between a king and a peasant. Nobody has cause for boasting. So it seems irrational and foolish, but what he's actually doing is confronting you with the truth of the human condition, which human beings are always trying to deny in order to live their lives. And he's saying, you got to stop living your life and start living the life that is prescribed by the Torah. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He replaced what we understood to be wisdom. And it's this teaching, this commandment that replaces what we understood. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Meaning that you're not sanctified by your cleverness or your ascesis. You're not redeemed by your efforts or your wisdom. You aren't righteous because you're part of the right group or have figured out the right way to live according to your system of belief. 
All of that is replaced by Christ Jesus, who died to everything on the cross, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to boast about whatever it is you're happy and excited or proud about, or feel secure about, or feel justified by? You want to boast about those things? You make null the cross. If you're going to boast, you have to boast the way Paul boasts throughout his letters, in your own failure. If you have someone who is escaping from war, who's a refugee, who's just made it across the Mediterranean, who thanks God, it's different than someone standing on the dais of a megachurch thanking God. Because the one who is on the dais of the megachurch is the king on his horse, the general riding into battle with an army around him. Right. This is why Jesus says to give up all your money. This is why Jesus says to give up your life. This is why Jesus says to hate your family. Because once you are stripped away of family, of clan, of money, of wealth, you have nothing left to boast in but the Lord. That's why in Hebrews 11, it doesn't just say Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. It said Abraham, who was willing to leave his land and live as a sojourner, dwelling in tents. It really pushes this because Abraham was willing to give it all up for the sake of simply a call. Go do this thing. But what's going to happen? You'll find out when it happens. Abraham was on a need-to-know basis, and he was okay with that. Why is it that someone in the military is willing to function according to a need-to-know basis, but not a Christian? Give it up now without any knowledge of the future, without any hope in the future other than the Lord will provide. And what the Lord provides is like what the youths say as they enter in the furnace. O king, our Lord can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will still not bow to you. We don't know if God is going to preserve our life or not when we make this decision, but we know he can, and if he doesn't, he's still Lord. It's like that beautiful sermon by Dr. King, but if not. And I think in that particular sermon, he was trying to explain to the black church that was suffering so much because of the abuse and the racism and all of the terrible actions that were taken against the civil rights movement. He was trying to explain in the darkest hour that God's promise is that if you trust his commandment, the commandment will do what the commandment's going to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be saved, but we're not fighting for our own benefit. We are fighting for the cause of the kingdom, which is universal. And we fight just as a soldier would fight at our own expense. That's why the metaphor of the centurion is so powerful in the New Testament. Imagine if We recruited people for the U.S. military and told them we would like you to fight for yourself. The military would disintegrate. It wouldn't work. But this is what churches do. They recruit people to fight for themselves. The gospel is recruiting you to give yourself up for the sake of others, for something bigger than you. This is the real deal. This is the heart of the matter. And I think the plea of our podcast, the consistent plea of our ministry, is that people would consider this and reevaluate how it is they're practicing religion and why it is that it's so wicked that all they do is talk about their denomination and their churches and growth and material success. It's wicked and it's depressing. It's like going to a funeral where a word isn't preached. 
If I go to a funeral and all I hear is about how nice the person was who died, I walk away sad because the person is dead. If I go to a funeral and the preacher stands up and gives a word of life that is linked to the witness of that person's death, then I have hope. Because that person's life was joined to the cause of Jesus Christ, which abides forever. It's as if you hear a Christmas sermon and all it's talking about is sweet baby Jesus and how much God loves the world that he gave his son and as it feels so nice, rather than saying, this is your opportunity to live according to this kingdom that people have been dreaming of for all these generations. Live according to it today because the noose is around your neck and you don't know when they're going to pull the lever. I'll tell you something about American Christians. Our society is rejecting their religion. And Christians talk about it apocalyptically as though they're being persecuted. And then the Christians in this country who live off the suffering of Christians in the Middle East emote about the persecution of Christians, which is a kind of destructive self-victimization that bears no resemblance to martyrdom. I'll tell you something. If you think prophetically, and you realize that this false baby Jesus theology you're offering everybody which is just a bunch of feel-good nonsense. If the world rejects that feel-good nonsense, that rejection is not your martyrdom. It's God's judgment against you for not being steadfast to his will and preaching his teaching. It's no joke. So I view the rejection of American Christianity as it is expressed in all of our various denominations and traditions as a keros an opportunity from God to go back to the fundamentals of studying scripture and explaining it, of learning Greek, of learning Hebrew, of studying ancient Near Eastern history, of going to church and being willing to be challenged and criticized and broken down, and broken down for the sake of the Syrian refugee. If we rededicate our commitment and our faith to this approach, then maybe God will count us worthy of persecution. But now we're just crybabies. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.